with all the past events that have happened in the past few weeks, from starting with Amy Cooper and George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, and just there's so many things. And I, I think especially the Amy Cooper thing kind of resonated with me. And everything else, obviously, is horrible and has resonated. But, you know, Refinery, the office is an office full of Amy Coopers. And to a lot of people who don't know the inside workings of Refinery, it seems like a feminist, inclusive utopia. Um, And as someone who worked there for a year and a half, I, I just know that's not the case. And I think just with all the grief and trauma everyone is collectively feeling right now, if there was ever a moment for you to speak out, it's it's now. Hey everybody, I'm Caroline. I'm Kristen. And y'all, we are living through an anti-racist civil rights movement unlike anything our generation has ever witnessed firsthand. The Black Lives Matter protests that have broken out across the country are calling into account not only the police violence that led to the murder of George Floyd, but also the ways that white women, like Amy Cooper, perpetuate white supremacy and systemic racism every day. Amy Cooper, a.k.a. Central Park Karen, the white woman who called the cops on a black bird watcher named Christian Cooper, no relation, and falsely claimed he was threatening her. In the midst of it, we at Unladylike have also noticed something of a white feminist reckoning happening, partly catalyzed by that video of Amy Cooper weaponizing her white privilege. Over the past month, a number of white female CEOs and startup founders who've publicly presented themselves as championing feminist inclusion have resigned over accusations of racist, inequitable, and punishing workplace cultures created on their watch. The list includes the head girl bosses of well-financed companies like The Wing, Man Repeller, Bando, Reformation, and digital media powerhouse Refinery29, whose editor-in-chief also just stepped down. Today on the show, we're focusing in on Refinery as an unladylike case study of working while Black, and why seemingly woke women-led utopias aren't immune from workplace toxicity and outright racism. Full disclosure, I freelanced for Refinery29 for about a year. The company touts itself as a forward-thinking global leader in media for young women, meant to inspire, entertain, and empower them. But legions of current and former Black, Indigenous, and POC employees beg to differ. In recent weeks, dozens have shared their experiences with what they describe as a toxic workplace culture, including Ashley Elise Edwards, whose voice you heard at the top of the show. Ashley worked at Refinery29 from November 2017 to April 2019, first as a senior news and politics editor, then as the section's deputy director. And on June 2nd, she fired off a tweet that inspired the hashtag Black at R29. That combination catalyzed a full-blown racial reckoning inside Refinery29. I wasn't tweeting this for a reaction from some, from anybody. I was just tweeting it out of anger. Um, and I really did not expect the tweet to blow up in any sort of way. And it did, um, which was surprising. But in the end, I, I'm really happy I did it. Calling out Refinery has had tangible consequences already. 
In addition to prompting the editor-in-chief's resignation, their parent company, Vice Media, is conducting an internal investigation, and the Refinery29 Employees Union has rallied in support. Another significant reason Refinery is our case study today? Media reporter Carrie Flynn had been investigating the dynamics inside the company for the previous nine months before the Black at R29 hashtag hit. She's today's second guest, and y'all, she comes with receipts. Reporting for CNN Business, Carrie interviewed more than 60 current and former Refinery29 employees who painted a picture of a deep-pocketed but not-so-idyllic workplace. My editor actually made a comparison weeks ago that, like, this is, like, the Me Too movement in the mm-hmm. fact that, like, yes. you're just, yeah. like, you're, like, yeah. this person goes, this person goes, this because it's just, like, people just, like, airing out the things that we've known for a while. Um, it's just, like, nonstop reckoning. And Caroline, I'd go a step further and describe what we're witnessing as a combination of Me Too and Black Lives Matter, both of which were also started by Black women. Yeah, totally. And... When money and power are at stake, white girl boss leadership can be just as adept at making work life a tokenistic hellscape as any bad male bosses out there. Cecily Bowen, a former senior writer at Refinery29, will share more about that later in the episode. I mean, you know, the the phrase that I've been saying over and over again since this whole thing happened is that, you know, a fish rots from the head. Well, Kristen, are you ready to fillet that fish? You bet I am. Let's do it. Our story starts with a blackout. On June 2nd, record label executives Jamila Thomas and Brianna Ajumang urged their industry to take a break and reflect in the wake of nationwide protests over the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. They wanted to disrupt business as usual, but the sea of black squares that overtook social media that day wasn't exactly what they'd envisioned. I mean, it definitely disrupted. Countless brands, celebs, and influencers dutifully posted black squares to their accounts. And Caroline, you and I didn't publish a new Unladylike episode that week as part of the initiative. Yeah, participation was so widespread on Instagram that there are now about 3 million more posts hashtagged Blackout Tuesday than Black Lives Matter. And to a lot of Black people, like our guest Ashley Edwards, all those squares looked like fake solidarity, not the deeper conversations and collective action that the creators originally were calling for. So that Tuesday, Ashley Edwards and some current and former Refinery29 employees she keeps in touch with were venting their frustrations over the black squares of it all in a group chat. One of them was like, did you guys see Refinery blacked out the homepage? And the current employee was like, yeah, uh, we did that earlier today. And we're only posting content about you know, Black Lives Matter. And I know you're not supposed to tweet in anger, and I've been generally really good about doing that, but I just, I was very triggered, to be honest, and just really annoyed. I'm like, what is this performative bullshit? Like, posting your, the background of the website, Black, is kind of a slap in the face to your current and former employees that you've mistreated. Ashley tweeted, hey, Refinery29, cool blacked out homepage. But you know what real allyship looks like? 
paying your black employees fairly, having black women in top leadership positions, and addressing the microaggressions your black employees deal with from management on a daily basis. Her thread continued, How much money has Refinery29 made off their black and POC employees? Has that been reinvested in them? Former Refinery29 entertainment writer Cecily Bowen, who we'll hear from later in this episode, quickly replied in support. She tweeted, As a former employee, I can definitely say that Refinery29 is the official publication of white feminism, well-meaning but violently clueless about race. A few days later, another former Refinery writer, Kalia Underwood, came forward and amplified the conversation with the hashtag Black at R29. Kalia tweeted, I was hired as a beauty writer in 2017. A natural hair writer specifically is what I was told during my interviews. I was too young and too eager to realize that I was signing up to be tokenized. The hashtag Black at R29 and Ashley's original Twitter thread emboldened more than 30 other current and former staffers to publicly share their experiences of working while Black at R29. This was on top of stories shared by anonymous current employees. Allegations range from physical violence and verbal abuse to constant tone policing and white colleagues getting credit for Black women's ideas. Reading those stories, I was like, wow, I can't believe all this was going on. And a lot of it I had no idea. And that a lot of people have been suffering through this. And it was also validating because a lot of the times when I was there, I was always questioning myself. I'm like, am I going crazy? Am I being overly sensitive? Is what they just said racist? Or was that like a a racist comment? And I was always second guessing myself. Um, But then to see so many people agreeing, I was like, okay, so this whole time Refinery was kind of just gaslighting me and all this stuff is legitimately racist. Since Ashley was in a management position at Refinery for a year and a half, she had a front row seat to the way the company's structural inequality trickled down. When I was there, I came in as a senior editor, even though I was doing the job all the directors were doing. I had tried to negotiate my title to be deputy director or director, and they're like, no, we'll we'll let you go up to that, even though... As a senior editor, I was doing the exact job, if not a bigger job than some of the directors. I had more editorial and journalism and reporting experience. Um, And then when it came time for me to be promoted, I was promoted to deputy director, even though there was no one above me and I wasn't given a, a real reason for that. And I feel like that is what happens to a lot of the Black women and other women of color there, that you kind of get stuck in this limbo of, oh yeah, you're doing a great job you're really valuable. We want to give you more responsibility, but just wait for that title and just wait for that pay bump. And while they tell you they can't pay you more, they can't give you the title they want that you want, they go ahead and hire some other white woman with some high title and high pay. And you're left wondering, hmm, that's interesting. If it were just one or two people, then maybe you can chalk that up to an accident. Um, but as you can see from the movement, it, it's it's systemic at this point. And Management really can't hide from that. Well, it's systemic and it's also grossly ironic because uh, I know I have read many a Refinery29 piece about Mm -hmm. negotiating salaries and asking for what you're worth. Um, Yeah, and that's what, for me, what attracted me to work at Refinery. And the hypocrisy at Refinery is something that I've never experienced before, considering we have a whole section and a whole series based on, you know, 
women asking for what they want, how to negotiate a salary, how to manage your finances. And we were actively discouraged from sharing our salaries when we were there. That was a, that was a true statement. We were told not to share our salaries. FYI on ladies, employees have the legal right to share salaries with each other. Full stop. I, you know, really didn't give a fuck. And I, I personally told my writers, like my reports, how much I made. Um, when any other editor or director asked, asked me how much I made, I told them. Because when you have transparency like that, it's harder for management to get away with these sorts of discrepancies. And that's what's happening now. Everyone is actively sharing their salaries and and fighting for fairness. Um, it, it's extremely hypocritical and they kind of just use the feminist movement to it's a business move for them to make money it's not something that's really practiced in internally ashley's right the site was founded in 2005 by two white men justin stefano and philippe von boris as a blog about new york design and fashion when justin and philippe realized that their fashion post attracted the most eyeballs they leaned in and began reimagining refinery as a slick fashion-forward destination for progressive millennial women. The guys then hired Piera Gilardi, who's now married to Philippe, to focus on site design and visual branding. And Piera's old boss, Christine Barbaric, was brought in to oversee editorial. Less than a decade after launching, Refinery had become one of the fastest-growing media companies in the U.S., valued at $500 million. Other digital media brands began popping up to get a slice of the millennial lady pie. Yeah, in the early 2010s, feminist digital media was more of a cottage industry of blogs like Jezebel, Bitch, and Feministing. Then suddenly, women's content was queen, and along came the digital gold rush of feministy websites of varying quality. Refinery29, Exo Jane, The Hairpin, The Skim, Pop Sugar, Hello Giggles, Rookie, Broadly, and Bustle, just to name a few. The increased competition for eyeballs and advertisers meant these new sites also needed to crank up output, ad deals, and especially in Refinery's case, clickbaity celebrity content. That celebrity factor is what led to one of Ashley Edwards's first major what-the-fuck moments while working at Refinery29. It was the summer of 2018, and Ashley was the deputy director of News and Politics. Christine Barbaric, then the editor-in-chief, wanted Ashley to publish an essay about the border crisis written by white actress from Texas, Amber Heard. This was kind of at the height of the, the border crisis um, with the Trump administration separating children from their parents. In this essay, Amber Heard was writing about how she grew up in a, a border town. Um, first of all, Dallas, I, I'm not from Texas. <sighs> I don't think Dallas is a border town. Ashley was uncomfortable with Christine's request from the jump. On top of that, the weekend before the article was set to publish, Amber Heard tweeted, Just heard there's an ICE checkpoint in Hollywood a few blocks from where I live. Everyone better give their housekeepers, nannies, and landscapers a ride home tonight. For fuck's sake, Amber. Yeah, Ashley didn't want Refinery29, and specifically the section she was in charge of, to be associated with those racist tweets and get dragged across the internet. Christine wanted us to publish it because at Refinery, upper management has kind of like an obsession with celebrities. They kind of want to be in with these people. So I sent her a very nice email and just saying, hey, Christine, I just have con some concerns about this, given 
what Amber had tweeted over the weekend and the tone of this piece, I mean, there's a lot of different uh, Latina writers we can get to write about this authentically because it's just the truth. Um, The next day she called me into her office and was like, I felt like you were telling me and not asking me. And I was just so confused and taken aback by her tone. And as editor of the section, I, I felt like I had right to raise those concerns. Um, and the piece ran after that um, because she was pretty much threatening that, you know, this is running. And it was flooded with negative comments. Um, and that was one of my first inclinations that like, oh, I guess that I'm here to show that there's diversity. But when it comes to kind of speaking out about my concerns, I'm really not supposed to do that. I'm, I'm kind of supposed to stay in my place. And I'm not the type of person who can kind of tolerate that for too long. And that's why I was at Refinery for only a year and a half. The breaking point for Ashley came at the end of 2018. One of her reporters, Andrea Gonzalez Ramirez, had been doing a ton of great work. She'd been one of the first reporters to even cover Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Plus, she was doing tons of press appearances and getting exclusives for the site. She was killing it. Around that time, Ashley's team all shared their salaries with each other. Turned out, Andrea was being paid $15,000 less than two white writers doing the same job. So Ashley brought her concerns to the higher-ups. And the two people I went to kind of, like, laughed it off and acted like she's getting paid what she deserves. She's getting paid enough. And I remember the executive editor at the time, who was my manager, was like, yeah, you know, and Andrea has tons of followers on Twitter. She's has a really great voice. She does really amazing work. And the executive editor said, well, you know, I kind of want her Twitter voice to come across more in her writing. And I'm like, what does that even mean? And at that point, I realized it it didn't matter what Andrea did. It didn't matter how many followers she had, how much traffic she got, no matter how many podcasts or TV shows she was asked to be on. They just didn't see that she deserved anymore. It was like, she she's paid what she deserves. And for me, that was it. I, I, I couldn't deal with that kind of blatant discrimination, quite honestly. So for me, that was the breaking point for sure. Ashley left Refinery29 in April 2019. Six days after her Blackout Tuesday tweet went viral, Christine Barbrick announced she was stepping down immediately, though the New York Times reports that she's staying on as an advisor through the fall. In an Instagram post, Barbrick explained the move was her way of making room to help diversify our leadership and editorial and ensure this brand and the people it touches can spark a new defining chapter. But the women who'd spoken up via the Black at R29 hashtag called bullshit. From what I've heard from people who were there, um, Christine was planning on stepping aside even before this all happened, just, you know, when the vice acquisition happened. So she was planning on stepping down. I think this just accelerated the situation. Mm. Um, And she's an easy sacrificial lamb to kind of throw, especially since like, oh, she was resigning anyway. Oh, but she's resigning because of this. First of all, her resignation little message on Instagram was insulting. Um, She framed herself as some like noble person who was gracefully stepping aside to give a woman of color or a black woman a seat at the table. No, you're kind of stepping aside in disgrace. So let's just leave, like, let's just put that out in the forefront. Um, And you're, she's no martyr. She's no hero. Um, she didn't apologize. She never apologized for anything from what I saw. Time will tell whether Christine Barbrick was just a sacrificial lamb. 
But the movement that showed her the door is a whole other case study on the power of true solidarity. Yeah, it's been a collective effort both externally with Black at R29 and internally with the Refinery29 union. The union is less than a year old, and they'd already been organizing around issues of company diversity, pay disparity, and problematic leadership. And as Ashley told us, all these former and current staffers rallied together because they genuinely care about each other and the meaningful content they've created despite the toxic workplace environment. The reckoning is far from over, too. Christine Barbrick wasn't the only Refinery29 exec who'd been called out specifically for racism and mismanagement. If you scroll through all the Black at R29 stories, another name that comes up a lot is Global President and Chief Content Officer Amy Emmerich. Amy has been running the company, um, and all of this ladders up to her. She can feign not knowing what was going on. I know she's released a couple of statements. But if you are the CCO of a company and all this is happening on your watch and you say you didn't know about it, I think that's grounds enough that shows you you're not doing your job. And I know there's an investigation being launched, but I know strongly from speaking with people there that she sh- they want her to resign. Um, will she? I'm not sure. But that's what everyone wants. It's not enough for just Christine to kind of take the fall for all this bad behavior. If Christine is the only one to go and she's replaced by a Black woman, that Black woman is being set up to fail because she's going to enter the same system with the same people that we've all experienced and we all know what happens there. And it can't just be a symbolic token for someone. It needs to be somebody who's going to be there to make real change and have the opportunity to do so. Up next, we'll talk to Carrie Flynn, a media reporter at CNN Business, who spent nine months reporting on the workplace culture at Refinery29. And spoiler, her findings back up all the major themes raised in the Black at R29 tweets. Plus, Carrie follows the money and wades knee-deep into venture capital. I had talked to, you know, like over a dozen people and and really like had started to paint the picture of this now, as we well know, this quote unquote toxic work environment, these claims of toxicity. And I asked people why they worked the brand. They were like, you know, it's so inclusive and so representative and, and it was just fun, you know, like it's a good place to work. And yet it really didn't take me long to discover that if I wanted to write about what it was like to work at Refinery29, the short answer was not good, like not inclusive. We're back with Carrie Flynn, media reporter at CNN Business. Carrie had been chasing her own version of the Refinery29 story since August of 2019. That's the month she joined CNN Business. She'd come prepared with a list of stories she was interested in telling, and pulling back the curtain on Refinery's operations was at the top. Like, here was this booming, quintessential, millennial feminist brand— that no other media reporters had really dug into. 
So the original picture that I was painting, you know, before everything came out online, I kind of had to make a stronger case uh, for why I was writing this story and, and frame it as kind of a problem that's pervasive across digital media. This idea that media companies perhaps just aren't the best places to work. Uh, a lot of, you know, the initial themes of the story were less about racism and, and tokenization. Um, it was still part of it. But a big thrust of the story was the massive pay disparity and the, quote unquote, what people told me, the untenable pace. Overwork and underpay are hallmarks of digital media. But as far as refinery goes, Carrie says their churn and burn pace had been an open secret in the industry and among her sources, as was the idea, like we heard at the top of the show, that Refinery29 wasn't exactly the empowering feminist utopia it appeared to be from the outside. I think the story that stuck out to me the most was not the like kind of inappropriate workplace uh, behavior that Christine, the editor-in-chief, had, but the editorial decisions she made. So that was where a former editor had tipped me that Christine would repeatedly choose to promote, quote-unquote, white faces on the site rather than Black women. And, and I heard that, and I was like, that just seems like that's the opposite of refinery. Like, really? But until Ashley Edwards got fed the fuck up with refinery's hypocrisy on Blackout Tuesday, a lot of Black women Carrie interviewed were reluctant to go on the record about the racism. And honestly, the story was like near publication. We were like ready to like list allegations and tell Vice that like, here it is, you know, like respond. Um, and pretty much the week, you know, when we were ready to do that is when the hashtag Black at R29 happened and people started speaking publicly. What was so powerful is I was able to get so many people to speak on the record. People were like, yep, you can put my name on it. So it was this fascinating thing where I really think that despite having that story so long before, what the finished product ended up being was so much more powerful because of what happened online. That time the editor-in-chief ran her fingers through a Black employee's hair? Corroborated. The Times, plural, that same editor-in-chief confused a Black employee for another Black woman who worked there even though they looked nothing alike? Corroborated. Executives pigeonholing Black writers as race-centric reporters? Corroborated. In the course of her reporting, Carrie also obtained a copy of Refinery29's 2018 demographics report. What she saw further explained the toxic culture behind the inclusive content. The company's overall diversity at the time was on par for the industry, which isn't saying much other than how white it is. But what struck Carrie was how Black, Indigenous, and other staffers of color were concentrated toward the bottom of the refinery hierarchy. The farther up the chain you went, the whiter it got. And not just in the executive suite. The senior positions and even into mid-level management were noticeably white compared to folks actually making and promoting the content. One very unhelpful question that I noticed coming up in response to a lot of the conversation that was that was happening around the Black at R29 hashtag were people interjecting and saying, well, if it was so bad, why... Why didn't y'all, you know, get together and, like, take a stand against this kind of behavior? Like, why did you—essentially saying, like, well, why did you even 
put up with it. (laughs) The truth is, and I was told, is that people did speak out and people did go to HR on nothing was done. You know, the the people that I spoke to, some people did go to HR and other people said they were scared to go to HR because unfortunately that's just the way that a lot of uh, people, you know, think is that, that HR is not your friend. And, and I think one thing that's important at the company as well is it, it was and is a lot of younger women, you know, and, and not say that younger, younger women can't be empowered and, and to make change, but it was younger women who were fearful of their job, you know, fearful of being like, um, I, I don't want to lose this job. I can't lose this job. Like I can't pay rent if I lose this job. And I'm scared that if I speak out, then Christine or, or someone else at the company is going to make sure I never get a job again in this industry that I want to keep working in. On June 11th, CNN Business published Carrie's story exposing the problems that Black at R29 and the Refinery29 union had called out. A week later, Vice Media, which now owns Refinery29 and has its own history of toxic workplace problems, side note, announced they were launching an internal investigation into what the fuck has been happening inside Refinery. What's your take on why companies like Refinery, Bando, The Wing, why they push such a good social justice image, why they why they talk such a good game when they refuse to grapple with the reality behind the scenes? I think they they speak to the generation. I think they, and, and they honestly, like, some of those founders also, like, embrace that and, like, want to be that, right? Like, as in, like, there's, you know, Refiner29 started being, like, we want to, like, not be Vogue, right? Like, we want to go to fashion shows and, and be another, like, brand. And and The Wing being, like, I want to, you know, Audrey being, like, I want to create a place that's inclusive to women because I just feel like there aren't those spaces. Like, I think they did, like, have good intentions. Uh, Like, you know, not all, but but definitely some. I, I would trust that they had good intentions. But I think there's really something to this industry when you're put in a position of power and you're now like running a legitimate business that people lose sight in that. Like I said, with the refinery story before, like, you know, people were willing to speak on the record. I had to like make a case about like why refinery 29 was this way. And for me, I followed the money, you know, And, and I started to learn that like, things really started to change when Refinery29 raised a lot of venture capital. Like, it was, like, round after round. And, and like, you know, there was, in 2016, they received $45 million. Like, it was an insane amount of money. And these, you know, people, they have this mission. But then you look at, like, okay, we need to hit these goals. Like, if we don't hit these goals, we're going to, like, die. Like, you know, this company's going to collapse. And I think that, like, makes people, like, push aside diversity and inclusion and, and push aside those original goals because they... They just need to make money. <laughs> Dumping piles of venture capital in digital media companies like Refinery29 doesn't just build up the churn and burn problem for the folks making the content. It also keeps the money and power in overwhelmingly white hands. The vast majority of venture capital funding still goes to white men. And if we narrow in just on the share that goes to Black women founders— According to a study called Project Diane, it's just 0.0006%. Jesus. Meanwhile, though, white feminism has attracted a bit more than crumbs. But girl boss beware. Intersectional feminism and white venture capitalism don't mix all that well for all women. 
Just take a look at the wing. The women-only co-working space with eight locations around the world has received more than $100 million in VC funding. But just like at Refinery, current and former employees of the wing say the company doesn't walk its intersectional talk. In March, the New York Times reported that the wing's feminist facade covered a toxic culture that treated staff, particularly black and brown women, more like the help. After months of tensions and more employees speaking out, CEO and founder Audrey Gelman resigned June 11th. Later that day, employees staged a digital walkout demanding the company take further action to correct its practices of disrespecting and underpaying workers. When we come back, we're talking with former Refinery29 senior entertainment writer Cecily Bowen. Cecily is going to tell us the story behind the black women's sub-brand that Refinery29 execs couldn't be bothered to fully support. Stick around. I'll never forget when I went in to interview at Refinery, I was just like, oh my God, people are wearing whatever they want and girl, these girls have on crop tops and their titties are out. Like Refinery29 <laughs> in 2016 was just like, I think the place that any, you know, kind of millennial girl trying to get into media would want to work. We're back with Cecily Bowen. Cecily worked as an entertainment writer at Refinery29 from November 2016 to December 2018. And she is one of the original minds behind Unbothered, the refinery sub-brand started by and for Black women. At first, Cecily was thrilled to get hired by Refinery29. For a while, she even felt like one of the leadership's favorites. Execs would pull her into meetings to get her thoughts on various projects. Video producers would ask her to hop on camera for various shoots. She even got assigned to profile Janelle fucking Monet. okay? (laughs) So when social media editor Allie Hickson asked her to join a group of black women at the company to start Unbothered, she was like, hell yeah, I'm in. The women built Unbothered themselves from the ground up without any formal resources. They'd be brainstorming ideas for their channels, sending them past legal. Plus, they were building out pitch decks and identifying potential brands to partner with, as well as brands to avoid. We wanted to see ourselves represented in the content at Refinery29. You know, if if we really want to look at Refinery as like a microcosm of the feminist movement in general, that is always the issue that Black women's role in the movement becomes this very niche thing. And Mm -hmm. when we want to participate, we have to go find ourselves and make room for ourselves in that. Or, Or I like to say reinsert ourselves into the narrative because, I mean, Black women have a very rich history in terms of the origins of feminism. But I felt so much like the the Black pop culture that I was covering, it was me talking to white people about Black people in pop culture, and I wanted to talk to Black people about Black pop culture, if that makes sense. So how did management respond? So basically, in terms of how management handled it, Amy Emmerich... <laughs> Remember, Emmerich is the president and chief content officer of Refinery29, among other things. Amy Emmerich is, um, 
Amy Emmerich is a fucking hustler, okay? And Amy Emmerich has the gift of gab. Like that, in in a lot of ways, that makes her phenomenal at her job and, and attributes a lot to her success. So she was very much so, um, if you, if you want to like talk to her about maybe an idea you had for like a series or something like that, she would be like, well, be scrappy, make it, and then let us see it. And then we can go from there. And that's very much so how Unbothered was treated as well. It, we pretty much had it built perfectly and served on a platter for the company to essentially just launch. Um, and we'd done all of that without any formal resources from the company. Allie was the only person who was formally assigned to it. And even she had other responsibilities in her actual job title. Like it wasn't like her job title was like director of Unbothered. Her, her job title was social media editor. When it came time to show Amy what they'd been working on, she didn't seem to even understand why the company needed Unbothered to begin with. We had been trying to get time on Amy's calendar to come to an unbothered meeting um, so we could, you know, finally show her like what we'd done um, and, you know, kind of tell her like we think we're ready to, to go with this. What she told us was that we needed to be prepared to explain to the rest of the company. I'm using air quotes because basically what that means is all of the white ladies. We needed to be able to explain why Refinery needed this. In other words, you know, why does Refinery need to speak specifically to um, Black women? So after y'all presented Unbothered to the rest of the company, um, what was the response like? Oh, it was super congratulatory. This is awesome. This looks great. You know, this is this is amazing, you know, per... I mean, as as to be expected, I think, you know, very performatively great. At big industry events where media companies get up and basically sell themselves to ad reps in the audience, Refinery29 lauded Unbothered as its fastest growing Instagram channel ever. They even brought Cecily to one of those events and asked her to present about Unbothered on stage. Internally, Cecily and the Unbothered team wanted to be clear that Unbothered is intentionally a capital B Black subbrand. We kept having to explain to them why it was really important in all of our marketing materials when we, when we were considering partnering with other companies and other brands, when we were talking about Unbothered, that we did not use the word multicultural. We were like, we want to use the word Black. We are Black women. This is for Black women. We need to say that word. Multiculturalism, especially in advertisement, usually leads to a lot of whitewashing. It means you put a palatable Black woman who is really light-skinned or maybe biracial with, like, curly hair but not too kinky, and, and you say, great, you know, we're diverse and we're multicultural and there's still an erasure of black culture that is happening in a decision like that. Well, why why the disconnect? What What is going on? What is sparking the disconnect between look at us, we are such an inclusive feminist front lines company, but we also treat our people like shit? Oh, it's because there are only white women at the head of it. I mean, it's it's really quite simple. 
there is no diversity amongst the leadership. I'm very aware, you know, in hindsight of how my work at Refinery29 was filtered through the lens of white folks. I mean, and I saw that happening in terms of how my pieces were edited because I was rarely edited by black folks. So, you know, I could produce all the ideas that I wanted to, but if if Christine or if Amy or any no- other number of white women, the the, you know, all of my work has to be filtered through them and through who they think the Refinery29 reader is, who is also white. Cecily, Ali Hickson, and previous Unbothered contributors all express pride and joy in the vision they collectively fought to bring to life. But all the microaggressions along the way added up. And when they each decided to leave Refinery, that meant leaving Unbothered behind while the company got to continue cashing in on their unpaid side hustling. It has now become this really shiny piece of marketing real estate, essentially, for advertisers who are able to tap into this very specific and and really engaged sector of refineries general audience. Um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's a moneymaker. And I mean, I honestly, when I was there, I was definitely greener than I am now. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so valued at this company. Oh my God, I'm being, I'm, I'm in meetings with Amy. Oh my God, I'm, I'm in meetings with the head of video. They, they want to know what I think about this. But you know, when your title is just entertainment writer, it, it doesn't translate. And when you're not paid for that kind of work. Now that I know what now that I know what marketing professionals make in comparison to what I make, it's 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 infuriating. So, you told Carrie Flynn at CNN, quote, "In hindsight, I believe I was being tokenized as a fat black woman and underpaid for my work." So how has that become clearer to you in hindsight versus when you were still there? And how do you think that compares to the experiences of, like, some of your fellow Black coworkers? I think that there are, you know, to, to, to be transparent, there are different kinds of, like, presentations that, you know, Black women have. Obviously, Black women are not a monolith. And, you know, for my homegirls who who came in and were very kind of unapologetically Black, they were just experiencing what I now understand just based on some of those stories that were shared so much more outright hostility. Whereas, you know, I was a fat Black woman coming into the company at a time where they were making a commitment to fat women and a commitment to Black women as as half-assed as they those commitments may have been. Um, And so I think really hearing from, you know, just some of my girls who worked there and how different the experience was for them in a way that I didn't see when I was still there and when I was just so excited about the work that we were doing and excited about the opportunities that I was getting. It's It's a huge regret of mine, actually. So in a more perfect, like, actually inclusive media world, what kinds of stories would you want to be writing and covering? So this is this is the the sad part of this is that 
I think a lot of the stories that I want to see out in the world do exist. And and I also know so many dope Black women who are telling amazing stories in media. I think in my ideal world, they would be paid more for them. They would be treated better by the companies that pay them to write those stories. They wouldn't have to be so emotionally and mentally drained in trying to tell those stories. So for me, it's not about the ideal media landscape is is not about the stories because Black folks are excellent storytellers and we're always going to tell our stories. It's about the conditions that that we have to work in to tell them. Well, this has been an incredible conversation. Um, is there anything that we haven't asked you or touched on that you think it's important for listeners to know? I, I guess... I want to say that I'm glad that you did not ask me, like, what white women need to do to, like, be better allies. <laughs> because... Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, and I, I guess what I, what I, the last thing that I would want to say is that what I've noticed is that in these moments, it's always like the labor of Black women to like not only experience this shit, but then to have to help others remedy their own actions and thoughts and behaviors to like treat us better. And that is so exhausting and, and tiring. I mean, we've had a lot of allies who've came out like in support of us in this moment, but I really fucking wish that some of those people would have spoken up when they were sitting next to us, when they were our managers when they were our bosses at the company. We reached out to Refinery29 for comment on the issues we raised in this episode, and the parent company, Vice Media Group, sent us the following statement. Quote, We take the concerns raised by employees regarding Refinery29 very seriously. The company, through its counsel, has retained Morgan Lewis to conduct an impartial and independent investigation into these allegations. The company is committed to taking the appropriate action based upon the independent findings that Morgan Lewis provides. on ladies we want to hear your thoughts on everything all of it from corporate feminism to digital media burnout to specifically refinery 29 let us know you can email us at hello at unladylike.co find us on social at unladylike media or join our private facebook group and jump into the thread for this episode I also highly recommend reading the Black at R29 stories that have been collected at the Twitter account at R29stories and follow the incredible women like Cecily and Ashley who sounded the alarm. You can also visit unladylike.co to find this episode's sources, transcripts, and sign up for our weekly Unladylike newsletter. Nora Ritchie is the senior producer of Unladylike. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marate transcribes our tape. Additional transcription help this week from Jamaras Perez. 
Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing is by Andy Christens. Sound design and additional music is by Casey Holford. Executive producers are Chris Bannon, Daisy Rosario, and Unladylike Media. This podcast was created by your hosts, Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin of Unladylike Media. Next week. I think that, like, it for me, it was in my friendships that I really learned how to be someone who loved people. Like, I didn't learn that from, like, being in romance. I was like, my friends are who really taught me, like, unconditional love. And, you know, like, you mess up and someone doesn't throw you away. Or, like, here's how you apologize to someone. Or here's how you can be challenged by someone that's different than you and and stay with them. Like, every healthy habit I have in a romantic relationship is truly because my friends taught me that, like, or I learned that in my friendships. We're talking to Aminatu So from Call Your Girlfriend, who's helping us imagine what life could look like if we let go of the marriage mandate and supported singletons. And for her, friendship is a big part of it. You don't want to miss this episode. Make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike. Find us in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, got a problem? Get unladylike. I started, I like had a mental spiral last night about venture capital. It's like, okay, we gotta shut it down, Conquer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, relatable. Stitcher. <laughs>